0: And on behalf of our project on China's Global Sharp Power, I'd like to welcome you to this event in our regular speaker series. Today, our theme is More Than Sharp Power, How the CCP Penetrates Taiwan and Hong Kong. You can learn a great deal about this subject in a new edited volume entitled China's Influence and the Center Periphery Tug of War in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Indo-Pacific, which I'm holding right here. This includes contributions from nearly two dozen distinguished scholars, including our guests, and to guide us through their findings, we are joined by Professors Andrew Nathan, Wu Jiamin, and Ma Nok. Andrew Nathan is Class of 1919 Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture, and human rights. Professor Nathan's books include Chinese Democracy, the Tiananmen Papers, and Will China Democratize, co-edited in part with our own Larry Diamond who directs this project. Wu Jiamin is a research fellow at the Institute of Sociology Academia Sinica and served as a director at the Center for Contemporary China at National Tsinghua University in Taiwan. He is on the advisory committee of Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council and a former board member of the Straits Exchange Foundation. His research interests include political economy, political sociology, social movements, democratization, and civil society, and his books include Rent Seeking, Developmental State in China, Anaconda in the Chandelier, Mechanisms of Influence and Resistance in the China Factor. Nok is associate professor at the Department of Government and Public Administration at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He writes extensively on elections, party politics, democratization and social movements in Hong Kong. He's the author of political development in Hong Kong state, political society and civil society, and more than 20 journal articles on Hong Kong politics. I'd like to welcome you all, but before turning the floor over to you, I'd like to remind the audience to submit questions via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screens, and we'll turn to them in the final segment of the program. Without further delay, Andy, please lead us into the presentation. Thank
1: you, Glenn, very much. Well, um, I know that everybody listening to this program is very much aware of Chinese sharp power under the guidance of the Hoover Global Sharp Power Project and Larry and Glenn. Uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong are more important to China for Chinese influence than any of the other places that we where we study their exercise of sharp power. These are two places that China is absolutely determined to control for very good security reasons of their own. And so it's in these places that, they, that the Chinese have made their greatest effort to exert influence through sharp power. And so it's very valuable for us to study how, the, how China exercises its sharp power in these two places. And that's what this book does. Can I have the next slide? So this is a table of contents of the book on this slide and the next slide. And what I wanna draw your attention to are two sections of the book that are the, the core of it. The first of these two important sections is part two on this slide here, China's Influence in Peripheral Autonomy, Hong Kong as a Case Study. This section of the book has five chapters by expert scholars located in Hong Kong, Ma nok is one of them describing how China tries to exert influence. This is before the uh, national security law was implemented, how China tried to exert influence in five domains of Hong Kong's life, including elections, the economy, media, entertainment, and religion. May I have the next slide? And part three of the book does the same thing for Taiwan. It has five chapters by, distinguished scholars located in Taiwan, including our speaker today, Wu Jimin, who's also one of the co-editors of this book, looking at China's uh, uh, influence efforts in the same five domains in Taiwan, elections, economy, media, entertainment, and religion. The rest of the chapters in the book, I think, are very good, if I may say so, but They're not the core, they provide historical context, they provide comparison to other uh, China's influence efforts in other regions. There's a chapter at the end of the book by me on on, uh, resistance to Chinese influence efforts around, uh, around the world. Um, and there's a final chapter by Richard Bush, you know, one of the probably the leading American specialists on U.S. Taiwan policy, uh, on uh, on the American perspective. But the core are these two sections, each with five chapters, detailing China's influence efforts in these two very important places. And with that, I want to pass over. To jam in to talk about the Taiwan case. Secondly, I will
2: um, very briefly define the modes of Chinese operations. Thirdly, I will introduce the five issue areas that our book has focused on through the Taiwan case. And finally, a few words about international comparison, going beyond Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong. So, is uh, more than the a uh, sharp power. uh the Chinese power prey is a routinized united front work. The, the united front work as a magic weapon of the CCP is carried out to an extreme extent, penetrating every corner of the target society, as we can see from uh, the Hong Kong and Taiwan cases. To achieve such a degree of penetration, the CCP must use local people and local organizations to work for them. Some of them may unwittingly fulfill the function, still most, um, most um, people are doing their job in exchange for material uh, rewards. So a whole bunch of local people are organized as kind of cooperators or collaborators. This widespread collaborative network in the target society therefore becomes an essential part of the Chinese inference operations. This element makes the Chinese model distinct from the Russian model. Next please. This slide shows uh, the three modes of inference operations we-, we define in the book. The first one is on the left hand side is external coercion is direct pressuring which is more conventional and relates to high politics. In the center, it's the penetration from within. By contrast, is an indirect operation by way of the local collaborators. And finally, the mode of eroding political boundaries, which is a mixed strategy. Next, please. We have worked on the, uh, five issue areas, including election, tourism, media, entertainment, and religion. We have two chapters for each as Andy just introduced, one for Hong Kong and another for for Taiwan. Next, please. Elections. First, uh, China has interfered in every Taiwan national election since 1996. That is quite early. Its method basically has changed from direct military intimidation into indirect pressuring. Since 2005, uh, the year that the CCP and the the KMT Kuomintang in Taiwan began to cooperate with each other, uh, there have been high level official exchanges between the CCP and the KMT. As you can see from these photos, I don't have time to introduce them one by one. Remarkably, the exchanges are not limited to politicians, but include religions and many other uh, social actors. Next, please. This is uh, in the Boao Forum 2018. Xi Jinping talked to a delegation of business people. Uh, they are very top leaders of the business uh, from Taiwan, led by Vincent Xu Vincent Xu is a former vice president of Taiwan, and, and his party uh, uh, identity is coming down, of course. Mr. Xu has been a central figure for high level exchange across the uh, Taiwan Strait over the last two decades. Next, please. A most dramatic united framework for the CCP, and it, it, it is the most successful operation so far, is the 1992 consensus campaign during Taiwan's presidential election in 2012. In this campaign, scores of tycoons stood up for the 1992 consensus. This chart you can see shows five waves of the 1992 consensus campaigns over the last uh, two decades. The last three waves match the electoral cycles. This so-called consensus, it, you know, it's just like a political mantra, being recited over and over by the KMT politicians without an end. Next please. Tourism is a crucial uh, leverage for the CCP to affect Taiwanese politics. The Chinese government controls the outbound tour groups to regulate the supply towards the target country. This measure can quickly nurture a constituency that depends on mainland tourism, this figure shows a clear trend of cheese surprise to Taiwan. The dramatic uphill—can you see from the, the top line—the uh, the dramatic uphill was to celebrate the came the this electoral victory over the DPP since two thousand eight, and, and when the DPP and when the DBP regained power. Beijing slashed its two tourist supply to pressure Taiwan again. Next, please, the Arabia Khadir affair is a, is the first, the very first instance of sanction by using tourism uh, from Beijing. It happened as early as 2009. Arabia Khadir was an exile Uyghur leader. The Kaohsiung city government sponsored an international film festival, which scheduled a documentary featuring Kadir, Beijing was so upset that it demanded the Kaohsiung government scrap the Kadir film. Otherwise, it would cut the supply of two groups to Kaohsiung. The DPP mayor, uh, who is Chen Ji, a veteran Democrat, decided not to give in, so she paid a high political cost. Next, please. Chinese control of the media around the world has been notorious. In Taiwan and Hong Kong, it goes almost unbridled. Chinese easy money has poured into Taiwan. Pet news, censorship, and the disinformation are daily phenomena for us. The picture shows that Wang Yang met with a Taiwanese media delegation. Wang Yang, the head of United Front Work, told the Taiwanese media bosses that Their news reports should be in line with the party's official ideology. Um, We won't see that that kind of thing happen for the New York Times or the Washington Post. Even in a horrid situation with Australia's ABC and BBC, uh, which were exposed a couple of years ago, that kind of operation wouldn't be so reckless and flagrant. Next, please. What is spectacular is the combination of disinformation warfare and a wolf area diplomacy uh, by the CCP. In 2018, a typhoon damaged Japan's Kansai airport. Beijing seized it to wage a propaganda war against Taiwan. The Chinese and the Taiwanese diplom- diplomats in, in Japan were depicted as unresponsive and incompetent compared with the Chinese wolf warriors. This incident led to a tragedy that a high rank Taiwanese diplomat committed suicide under tremendous pressure. The Kansai airport incident clearly indicates that the Chinese model of disinformation warfare is different from the Russian one. Uh, Next slide, please. The Russian model is uh, quite well studied So I skip it here. The Chinese model starts and ends in the same mechanism as the Russians. But in between the operation process, it masters a large army of local collaborative agencies, uh, including mainstream media outlets, bosses, journalists, editors, and so on. Without the deep-rooted collaborative network, the CCP wouldn't have been able to convert a natural disaster in Japan into a political crisis for the DPP government in Taiwan. Uh, The Chinese growing market and influence in the global entertainment industry have brought significant outcomes. The PRC captured this sector to censor the entertainers and producers and the directors just to sway people's political identity. A Taiwanese singer, you can see from the photo here, who is very popular in South Korea. She is Taiwanese. She is working in in, uh, South Korean K-pop. She apologized to the Chinese government and the netizens for waving the ROC or Taiwan flag with the Korean flag. The city has for information warfare and for the retouch or Taito or Taiwan independence advocacy entertainers. Uh, they believe so, but actually they, 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 they may not be as Taito supporters actually. Likewise, the CCP can also weaponize the apps such as TikTok and WeChat. Next please. Religion, um, temples are Taiwan's cultural and uh, local political centers. Most large temples are controlled by local factions and um, religious notables. So they become targets for Chinese United Front work. This slide shows that a module temple in Taichung, uh, Middle Taiwan, uh, becomes a key post for the CCP officials to penetrate the grassroots. The table on the right, uh, which I compiled, lists an, an itinerary of CCP officials. They visited 18 temples during the two-week tour. Chen uh, Nangong was the facilitator for this trip. This kind of pilgrimage provides the Chinese officials with excellent avenues to investigate Taiwan's grassroots and cultivate networks. During the 2016 presidential election, a high-level official visited Taiwan several days before voting. He went straight to Chen Gong and convened a secret meeting with 29 neighborhood heads in the district, and he told them room to support. What, what is, people may be you know, curious, what is the, the payback for such co- collaboration from the religious notables and religious bosses, local factions? According to our research, uh, the chapter on religion uh, in the book, local bosses can gain a religious bonus. And this kind of bonus is realized mostly in huge land development profits. These photos show that a top uh, Taiwan affairs official Li Lichong toured around the island and he was welcomed everywhere, everywhere by the cooperative religious forces and local politicians. Next please. Now my conclusion, the Taiwan case can apply to other countries and religions. Uh, there was a thought missile dispute between South Korea and, and and China several years ago. Once South Korea decided to deploy the missiles, Beijing began its economic sanctions. Its measures including cutting the tourist groups to South Korea, banning the K-pop performances in China, forcing the Lord Group, uh, Lord Group provides a land strip to uh, for the deployment site. So Beijing forces the old group to cross its supermarkets more than 100 in, in China and so on. So we found that these uh, sanctions are so strikingly sim- are similar to what Beijing has done to Taiwan before. And later we discovered that the same operation was applied to Australia just uh, last year. I won't go into details about the operations in many other countries for the sake of time. It suffices to say that our framework makes a step forward for the study of sharp power, authoritarian diffusion, and the pushbacks by the target country, by by the people who are influenced by the Chinese sharp power. Finally, the weapon of the weapons utilized by the CCP, it's not an approach that I called commercialization of the United Front work. The exchange between the Chinese and the foreign partners is purely commercial, mutually beneficial and innocuous on the surface. But when you uh, probe deeper, you can always dig out the political motivations uh, on the Chinese side beneath. Okay, I will stop here and pass the microphone to Professor Mango. Thank you very much.
3: Okay, I will uh, share my own PowerPoint. Uh, Thanks for uh, giving me this chance to uh, talk about Hong Kong. And um, uh, there are five chapters on Hong Kong and my chapter is mostly uh, on Hong Kong elections. Uh, I'm sorry to say that actually a lot of what I had written was kind of outdated because uh, most of uh, the chapter was written, uh, and most of the chapters are actually uh, written before 2019, uh, before the anti-extradition protest. And, but I think the, the other chapters are still largely okay, the framework, but, but uh, elections in Hong Kong, uh, change a lot, uh, after that. Uh, Hong Kong is different from, uh, uh, Taiwan and other, uh, other countries, peripheral countries, uh, mentioned in the book in terms of like South Asia, uh, Central Asia is that Hong Kong is under the direct sovereignty control of China. So uh, as far as elections is concerned, actually, the, uh, all constitutional changes in Hong Kong towards full democratization need the approval of Beijing. And, uh, my historical kind of historical account to show that, uh, Beijing actually intervened twice, uh, before 2019, levels was, uh, in terms of rewriting electoral rules in 1998 and 2012. But, uh, actually, uh, Beijing can, uh, make their own rules for Hong Kong, uh, from Beijing. And that was what happened, uh, in 2020. And then, uh, but, Actually, in 2016 and 2017 they intervened to disqualify elected legislators in 2016 and 2017 by interpretation of the basic law. in, in essence because some of them show, uh, shouted uh, uh, derogatory uh, slogans when they were uh, taking the oath or office. And then in the end, six opposition legislators were disqualified uh, because of this re- interpretation of the basic law. But that was just the beginning. And then uh we all, in Hong Kong, I have been studying uh, elections in Hong Kong for some years, and ho- China has been the most important factor in Hong Kong elections because of its uh, indirect influence in terms of, first of all, the attitude to Beijing and at the attitude to democratization of Hong Kong, human rights in Hong Kong, have been the major political cliffage in Hong Kong elections since, uh, uh popular elections were introduced uh, to the legislature since 1991. so for those of you who uh do not understand the uh, uh current situation of Hong Kong uh Hong Kong after 1997 we had about half of the legislature popularly elected by one person one vote uh and the other half was elected by functional constituencies which are mostly uh representative of major business and professional groups of which most people do not have a vote the chief executive is elected by an election committee of about seven hundred people which are mostly under the influence of beijing so uh but uh beijing still views uh, is in direct influence uh and this is actually a very important part of my chapter that is by co-optation of business professional elites and uh so-called uh, uh united front uh, and then they managed to build a very strong patron-client network uh, in Hong Kong uh, that comprised of various uh, unions, uh, residential associations, other so-called uh, uh, mass groups, including women's groups, youth groups. They organize a lot of different uh, activities, uh, give out gifts, and that become a kind of a very powerful mobilization machine uh, during elections and then they registered uh, uh, the members into uh, to become voters and then mobilize them to campaign so actually uh these was uh actually very effective in local elections in district council elections in the sense that those elections will be less ideological uh more about uh local uh benefits and then uh the patient client mobilization was more effective so this is one thing that I try to emphasize in my book chapter. That was the pro Beijing forces were gradually gaining ground before 2019. Uh, that was their vote share in popular elections were gradually increasing from what was about 25 percent in 1997 to gradually 40 to 45 percent before 2019. This is another special thing about Hong Kong is that the pro-democracy opposition has been getting a majority of popular votes uh, in elections, but just that because uh not the whole legislature was popularly elected. So they were kind of in a kind of a permanent mi- minority status getting about 40% of seats in the legislature. So the other areas I would be brief here, tourism, entertainment, business, media, they had similar situation in that, uh, the China market was so important. A lot of those uh, businessmen who are I- engaged in these areas, actually, they had to, uh, uh, cater for the position of uh, uh, China. And China's capital is so dominant in Hong Kong. So, uh, for a lot of the businessmen, they do not want to, uh, they have to uh, kind of adopt a more conservative pro-Beijing position. And a lot of self-censorship going on, uh, in the media with the very, uh, exception of maybe Jimmy Lai's group. And then there's limited local resistance and also the church as well. Uh, 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 there was a lot of criticisms in Hong Kong uh, against the, the, the uh, mainstream churches, including the, uh, uh, uh Catholic, uh, the Vatican being, uh, silent on Hong Kong's issues. And then because they were largely loath to oppose Beijing, uh, as, uh, for, for a number of years but uh a lot of these still i would say still hold true but that wasn't changed much uh after 2019 but 2019 was a major game changer uh as far as i can concern. this is not covered in the book but i feel obliged to to actually uh, do some supplement here and the anti-extradition bill movement which lasted for several months uh changed everything in the sense that it was seen as a kind of a separatist movement by Beijing. And also, Beijing was very unhappy about uh, uh, Hong Kong politicians and activists going all over the world to the US and then uh, uh, to lobby for Western sanctions. So they feel that they need to stop there And then uh, in December, uh, in november 2019 there was the local election district council elections and it brought a landslide victory of the democrats which enabled them to one to win 86 percent of the total seats and which was unprecedented before that they hold about 30 percent of the seats in the local elections and then uh we were supposed to have a legislative council election in 2020 september that but that was postponed uh uh, with the pretext of the pandemic. And then they, they were, they were the threats of the Democrats really winning a majority in the 2020 legislative council elections, even with the, uh, limited election, uh, model. So what happened was, uh, Beijing stepped in to use more direct inference, uh, because they understand that even with all the money that they put in with the powerful patron client, uh, um, uh, uh framework, that was kind of overwhelmed by the political tide in 2019. Uh, Because in the 2019 uh, uh, district council election, it was a historical uh, high voter turnout of 71%. Uh, In the past, it was usually about 40, 45% of the uh, voter turnout. So a lot of people, they were afraid that uh, the 2020 legislative council election would be a repeat of this so what they do is that of course they enacted the election security law in june 2020 uh and then uh which was uh i i guess some of you and then they postponed the september uh 2020 elections so uh what did happen is uh they disqualified four uh pro-democracy legislators in november 2020 directly from beijing so the democrats in protest actually uh, originally there were about 25 of them they pull out of leg- they did cancel altogether because they were the ones that who are e- were elected in 2016 were supposed to serve until 2020 and then, uh, but then the election was postponed. They were given one extra year, but then the, uh, four of them were deemed, uh, unpatriotic and then, uh, uh, uh they w- were not seen as supportive of the basic law. So they were disqualified. And then the Democrats in protest were of let So actually the currently serving legislature, almost we can say that there was no opposition in the legislature. But, and then 55 opposition candidates who participated in a primary uh, uh, of the Democratic camp were arrested in January uh, 2021 on charges of subversion, because uh, 36 of them were denied bail and they, they, they are still in uh, custody. Uh, because Beijing saw that uh, the, uh, the campaign to try to seize a majority in uh in hong kong in the legislature in hong kong and then maybe between the budget trying to brittle a budget to uh force a constitutional crisis as subversive so um and then what was more is uh the direct uh, change of the electoral system that was handed down in march this year so uh the national people's congress uh uh, uh decided to change the electoral system for hong kong and this is one thing which show the actual direct influence of Beijing very much, very different from other uh, peripheral countries, is that they can hand down decisions directly from Beijing and then Hong Kong as a local uh, place has no way to constitutionally to resist. And then the directly elected seats will reduce from one half of the legislature to 20. So, uh, and then the 40 of the, uh, new seats were, would be elected by an election committee that elects the chief executive, which means that Beijing would be most likely to control the majority of the uh, election the committee. And then they were building in multiple, uh, screening mechanisms, uh, in the name that they think that now it is very important that the patriots should be ruling Hong Kong, so called <laughs> And then, um, and then, so they build in a screening committee. Every candidate needs to be, uh, uh, go, uh, get approved by a screening committee. And then they have to take an oath to swear allegiance to, uh, the basic law and, uh, and the SAL government. And then they need to get nominations from the, uh, uh, election committee members, uh, different sectors of the election committee members making it very difficult actually for the pro-democracy opposition candidates to be able to enter the race. So uh I'm using up my time here. So uh, the change of franchise in the election committee is also making it more difficult for the uh Democrats to contest in the future elections. So this is what was what is new? Uh, we are supposed to have a election, uh, a legislative council election in December 2021, but this is a totally uh, new change in terms of uh, uh, the electoral system in Hong Kong, showing the direct influence of China on Hong Kong. So I will stop here. Thank
0: you. Thank you all for those great presentations. Um, I'd like to start the next few minutes of conversation with you with a question for Professor Ma. And that is many of the changes that you've just described for us are electoral changes, some of which have not yet taken effect because they're prospective, uh, though the um, they augur very poorly for the state of Taiwan's democracy and the leadership that Beijing installs uh, in Hong Kong. Um, uh, But I wanted to ask you if you could widen the scope a little bit and update us as to what is happening outside of the political system with respect to educational reforms attacks on the professional bar. For example, arrests trials and how Hong Kong society is struggling to hold on to uh, the freedoms and liberties that it had enjoyed for a great many years in the face of this political shift in power and the more aggressive assertion of PRC power in the city. Um, what kind of resistance is there? Is there pushback uh, and, and what is slipping?
3: Uh, we are struggling to, to be frank because I think the chilling effect of the election security law is just uh, very strong. And then uh, we are still under very tough social distance rules in Hong Kong. So uh any social so gathering uh, of more than four people would be struck with a fine of uh about 5,000 Hong Kong dollars, which is about uh, 700, 800 US dollars. And then, uh, but it, uh, incredibly Hong Kong is down to single digits of daily infections. Can you imagine if we are a uh, kind of 7 million uh, people city and then we are down to single digits of infections uh, every day? Uh, but then we still have very tough, uh, social distancing. So, uh, I would say there was a lot of chilling effect with, uh, um, because the national security law was so broad. And then, uh, and then the penalty is very heavy. And then, uh, uh those who are arrested can be denied bail and then uh, which is in effect, uh, in, uh, in detention. So, uh, it posed a major for civil society so for the time being a lot of people and there was a lot of talk about immigration uh in hong kong which is a kind of induced a kind of a sense of uh helplessness which doesn't go well for all kinds of movement so there are uh, there are small groups who are still doing uh resistance in a kind of a mode of everyday resistance but actually uh we for the for a short period of time, we, I I don't see a major resistance movement or or, or massive movement as you can witness on TV uh, that that happens in in 2019 uh, happening. Uh, of course, we we still have some of the uh, limited freedom. The the the, the is still being published, and then it is still very critical. And then, but uh, we are also afraid that a lot of different of these freedoms will uh, will be diminished uh, gradually, uh, because especially there will be, we can, we can check and balance uh, with the absence of an opposition in the legislature. And then, uh, so this is uh, going to be difficult.
0: What is your sense of how this has affected universities and what faculty are comfortable talking about and teaching?
3: I don't know, because different people have uh, different, uh, 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 calculations, uh, because, uh, I, I sometimes find it funny because uh, sometimes it seems that overseas universities are more, more uh, concerned about talking about China, uh, where, whereas we are talking about China and Hong Kong politics every day in classrooms. And, and, and I take more of my classes because, uh, these days I would say that <laughs> there's no way that you can, uh, forbid people taping your lecture uh actually when whenever you put things uh uh uh, online so uh but i would say that was a major chilling effect on the freedom of speech in hong kong and then uh and also uh, academic freedom and then uh because uh we are kind of uh, worried a lot of people are kind of worried about some for example some kind of international exchanges uh uh and then uh whether or not that would uh hurt uh, that would be seen as collaborating with foreign powers and then what you are supposed to say what you are not allowed to say and these are uh, 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 and these are something that kind of an atmosphere that uh i think has been induced uh in hong kong in recent years in the recent months i would say i think about one year
0: Thank you very much for Professor Wu. I have a question, um, you know, like Hong Kong, there are segments of Taiwanese society that actually genuinely favor very close. If not full integration with uh, very close relations, if not full integration with the PRC in a pluralistic society, how do you tolerate those points of view and separate collaborators from people who genuinely favor. Very close ties with the PRC as. Professor Ma has pointed out there, you know, are segments of the PR of Hong Kong that are organized and actually, you know, uh, genuinely favor um, close mm-hmm. ties with mainland China. In Taiwan, there are those people as well. So, in a pluralistic society, how do you strike that balance um, between respecting their positions and and also tackling the problem of influence and collaboration?
2: Okay. Thank you. Uh- Oh, sure, we know that Taiwan is a young democracy, and but Taiwan has consolidated its um, uh, democracy. And also Taiwan's judicial system is quite independent uh, from yeah. the parties and from other social inferences. Uh, so as you say, Taiwan has been a very pluralistic society, but uh, Taiwan, there's a deep uh, political... Uh, split or cleavage among the people, among society, just like in the States. We have a penguin green group uh, and we also have pan-blue camp. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, if we, uh, if, if we analyze them, uh, collapse them into uh, two parts in terms of uh, uh, vote, votes, uh, the proportion is about four to uh, six to four. Okay. That's, uh, that's uh, not, Vote base, but in Taiwan actually there are uh, quite a few people who are genuinely identified with the Chinese political values and the Chinese nationalist uh, ideology and I would say that proportion is maybe as low as ten uh, percent or fewer okay so uh but but there are still some people uh, more than they are willing to do business. With the Chinese market, and and they think the Chinese uh, market is the great op- opportunity that we cannot miss out. Okay, so Beijing is very clever to take um take advantage of this uh motivation uh, to do business with those people and to uh to to deliver uh it's good in exchange for political uh, gains. Okay, so. The how to strike the balance, it's very, I would say it's very difficult. And uh, um, because I'm a member of the civil society, I I joined many uh, social movements protest against the Chinese influence over the last decade. So I think a balancing power from Taiwan is the civil society, especially as the ruling party is more or like pro-China, all right? but now since DPP, who that uh, that is more uh, local rooted uh, so we can see there's a quite good synergy between the government the civil society civil uh, civic groups and also the cyber experts to ward off the the very fierce uh everyday uh, attack from the disinformation uh, sphere okay so that is uh, uh, generally, that is the situation in Taiwan. And and finally, I can give you a, a side note uh, about uh, the, the difficulty of striking balance. Uh, the court just ruled that uh, several young people were not guilty for cooperating and receiving money from the Chinese agents on the amendment. Uh, they apprised some age-old uh, uh, legal articles and uh, the court says that they are not guilty. So this this case you know make a splash in Taiwan society and still you know is still making some uh, side effect and 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 push us you know to to think deeper about uh reforming our legal system, especially against the Chinese uh aggression.
0: Thank you. Yes, it's in the nature of democracies that they struggle to uh, meet the challenge of especially United front work, because it's um, it exploits the openness of our societies for Professor Nathan. I have a question in some ways, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan are special cases. Their societies have unequaled ethnic linguistic and cultural ties to mainland China. And they're at the at the top really of the CCP's list of core strategic interests. Even so, you could say that they also prove the limits of CCP influence. And that has forced the PRC to essentially escalate by taking more assertive measures in both places. Um, What lessons should the rest of the world then draw from their experiences about not just the possibilities of CCP influence, but also the limitations?
1: In my chapter in the volume, I looked at Various forms of CCP influence, including the Belt and Road Initiative, where they have an estimated trillion dollars of commitments to invest in infrastructure in 80 countries, including countries that trade with China, and, and so forth. And what I, the basic pattern I found is that in every country, there's a, a faction that's pro-China and there's a faction that's anti-China, and it's often. <clears throat> the people in government who are pro-China because they've got a good deal with China to build something and they're getting a loan and probably in many countries some corrupt side payments and then it's the opposition uh, that's critical but when the opposition comes to power they often switch around and do a deal with China so Malaysia was a great example of that where the Najib government was criticized by the opposition led by Mahathir for their corrupt dealings with China and taking too big of a debt. And then when Mahathir Mahathir said, I'll get rid of that, when he came back in, he went to China and struck a deal with the Chinese. So Chinese presence is controversial every place. Um, That the economic Element that Jimin emphasizes is very important in those dynamics, because money talks, and the United States and 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 other actors, Japan and others, don't have the same scale of money uh, to put into mm-hmm. other countries that China has. But then again, the 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 sort of rapid rise of Chinese power, their wolf warrior diplomacy, is perceived as sort of aggressive, and so mm-hmm. that. Uh, also causes a certain amount of shock and pushback in a lot of countries. So the picture is complicated.
0: Thank you. I want to uh, turn to the question and answer segment of our program now and first to uh, Larry Diamond.
4: Well, uh, thank you, Glenn, and thank you all three for these great presentations, the really important book, and to Professor Ma, the superb and deeply distressing update on the situation. I want to ask a little bit different version of what Glenn has asked, and very specifically uh, in this respect, um, what lessons Taiwan might draw from the trajectory of uh, postures that the PRC has manifested toward Hong Kong. Of course, we hasten distress. You know, uh, Hong Kong was in the w- one country, uh, two systems framework. Taiwan is not. They're trying to draw tra- Taiwan into it. But, you know, uh, they had applied one country, two systems. They had a treaty like obligation not to touch Hong Kong's autonomy uh, for uh, 50 years. And uh, it didn't work out so well. Uh, they uh, acted to suppress that much sooner than some people thought they would. That is, well short of the 50-year time frame, And it seemed like, uh, and your, your presentation suggests China has gone through a kind of escalation of tactics from soft power to sharp power. Nothing worked in Hong Kong, and, fi- and, and in fact, it looked like they were losing control popular protests were increasing, pro-democracy forces were getting uh, more votes, and they finally just said, the heck with it, we're going to play, we're going to use force. Uh, And they used it in a more incremental way, actually, than I thought they would. But do do you think that we should draw a similar lesson with respect to Taiwan, that if they decide that the alternation and graduation of soft power united front and sharp power tactics is leading nowhere Uh, that it's with their only despite all their different measures taiwan is simply becoming more and more permanently lost uh that they'll just make a similar pivot toward a much more dramatic implementation of their will with respect to taiwan
3: uh, actually, I don't know the answer to this question because I think that, uh, the 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 game plan of Beijing was working very well before 2019. Actually, we uh, a lot of Hong Kong people were pessimistic in the in the different sense because uh, I think they they are actually gradually increasing the control, and then it seems that uh, the vote share of the pro Beijing groups were increasing uh actually before 2019 but then of course 2019 changed everything and then the interesting thing is that i think the 2019 protests actually uh flew off the game plan with taiwan as well because they were being successful when when Kuo-yu was elected uh, uh uh the Kaohsiung mayor and then they were looking good in terms of the kmt uh, winning the presidential election but then uh but then I think uh to me the Hong Kong situation actually uh enabled the DP to uh uh win the, the the presidential election. And then uh it seems that everything changed in terms of uh Taiwan people's uh uh impression on China, etc. So so I do not know uh, what extent are they serious about the military option. Uh it seems not conceivable in, in the sense of the uh, like China peacefully rising with all the talk and then it, it, its original situation was kind of favorable to them. Uh, but I would say uh Hong Kong is different from Taiwan in that respect, in terms of uh uh the uh they do have direct control on Hong Kong. But I do believe that actually, by using a lot of these sharp power, sharp power, and then uh, direct influence, actually, um, it is not serving the best interests of Beijing. In terms of like, uh, uh, I would say the one country two systems is there to show the Western world that Hong Kong is still a good place for business. But then uh, by uh, doing away with all these uh, elections, et cetera, et cetera, uh, actually, uh, in terms of a kind of a show window to Taiwan and also the show window to the world, Western world, and that that has uh, not served the best interest of Beijing. So, so actually, I, I think they are kind of hesitant in a lot of different measures. Uh, but of course, it is also very tough on Hong Kong for the time being.
2: Yeah, uh, the, the Hong Kong uh point country system is no more a demonstration window for, for Taiwan. No chance about that. And and in uh in the anti extradition law uh, protest uh, uh two years ago, uh Hong Kong became a lesson for Taiwan. So there was a slogan by the youth uh taken to the street. They say that uh yesterday, you know, today's today's Hong Kong, tomorrow's tomorrow's once we have stand up, against the inference, release the negative uh, the ear wing from blowing from the mainland. So that that uh, support uh, to Hong Kong indirectly uh, also uh upholds the support rate for President Tai Ying election to some extent. And I would like to add that. Uh, Hong, Hong Kong and Taiwan are two very different cases uh, in historical pers- perspective. You know, they, these two places are going on opposite uh, trajectories. Taiwan has emerged from a very authoritarian setting. We have we we had only very low level election uh, fifty years ago, and and little by little we have. Uh, you know, gathered momentum from the electoral mobilization, uh, one after another, and we had a breakthrough in the mid '60s. And after almost 34, 35, uh, or 40 40, 40, 40 years, we consolidated the democracy. And when you look at Taiwan, by contrast, you look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been a, a so-called mixed regime. Okay, a part of democracy and very full, full a guarantee of liberty and freedoms, and also a, a semi-democratic system uh, during the later days of British rule, okay? And it's, it uh, spilled over to the early days of Chinese rule. And and that didn't change for almost uh, uh, 15 years. But over the last de- decade, especially the, the, since the, the movement in 2012, the, the high school students hunger strike Against the patriotic education program, you know, I think since that moment, the Chinese leaders have changed their frame, they have changed their mind frame, and they decided, kind of, to uh, to change from the soft power into uh, hard power and into repression, and finally they impose the national security law. So the the trajectory of the Two societies are so different.
0: Thank you. We only have a couple of minutes left, but a colleague of ours at FSI Tom finger has asked a very interesting question that I'd like to pose to Professor Wu. So I wonder if you could uh, answer it briefly and that is have CCP influence efforts impeded. Or accelerated and strengthened Taiwan's transformation from 1 party authoritarianism to democracy. And have those efforts moderated or accelerated the deterioration of PRC relations with countries like Australia, Canada, and the BRI? So for example, has the pressure from the PRC helped or hindered Taiwan's democratization?
2: Okay, this is a very interesting question. You know, it's it's a paradox, you know. Uh, uh, for some skeptics or for China people, they say that, you know, if you argue that the Chinese negative influence is affecting Taiwan's domestic, domestic politics, how could you argue that our democracy has been consolidated and improving? You know? But you know, just because the success of the United Front work uh, united Front uh, majors, and the people feel the power of Chinese uh, the pe- penetration, so the people are uh, awakened to resist, to push back those influences, okay? So, just as um, uh, Professor Ma uh, cited the, uh, the 2018 local nine, 9 one local elections, during those elections, the KMT uh, clearly defeated DPP, and they look like they're, they're poised to win the presidential election, you know, within one year. But how come the DPP can make a fight a back? to push back the influence from, from China. It because the awakening of the people, you know. So this kind of inference uh uh interaction uh pattern is not an objective uh scientific law. You know, it always needs the human agency to 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 explain the outcome. Okay. So I think I think uh uh, in final analysis, I think the China factor operating in Taiwan inevitably improved, strengthened our democracy so far.
0: Thank you, that's an excellent answer. And I'd like to thank you all for a magnificent set of presentations. I'd also like to remind the audience that the book uh, is available if you'd like it. I'll show it to you again um, here and Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't draw your attention to the uh, next event in our series on May 24th, where former British diplomat Roger Garside and human rights lawyer Tang Biao will discuss towards a democratic China, what role can outsiders play? Mr. Garside himself has just published a new book entitled China Coup that sparked tremendous interest, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, thank you and be well.